Welcome to Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield. We're glad to have you here. We've got a special guest for this podcast episode, Mr. Bill Crystal. Uh, Bill, I've known for a while. He's now the editor-at-large for The Bulwark, and he's also the director of Defending Democracy Together. Bill, welcome so much to Practically Political. Thanks, Carrie and Dave. Great to be with you. So, Bill, I want to start things off. So we just uh, last week hit, or, you know, roughly the last little bit, uh, one-year anniversary of the repeal of the Roe v. Wade ruling by the Supreme Court. Where do things stand politically? I mean, it seemed that it was a factor in the midterm elections last year. Um, but do you think it's uh, an issue that is, where do you think it falls in, in importance to voters? And how much do you think it's going to impact the twenty-four? I think it's hard to know because it's not that often that a what, 49-year-old president gets overturned and one that's a does affect, for better or worse, obviously, actual policies and actual, you know, choices that people make or would like to be able to make. Uh, so I think it's it's a little, it's not like a normal court decision, not normal, but other many other decisions which are a little more abstract, at least to most people, unless uh, the number of people who could be affected by this and who have relatives who could be affected by it and friends, obviously, is, is almost the whole country. So... I think in practice, it makes a lot of difference what state you live in, you know, and it clearly it affected things in 22 in states that where the Republican, and mostly this was the case, I think is the, the, the instance where it affected things the most is where the Republican Party had locked itself into or chose to lock itself into a very strong, let's just call it pro-life position, six weeks maybe, uh, something like that. And the state was not there in terms of the majority of the state electorate. And so in a state like Michigan, uh, it really helped the Democrats. Uh, in other states, I, I don't know that the Democrats paid much of a price, though you could say, well, doesn't the reverse happen? What about the Democrats have their own extreme positions, nine months, you know, et cetera, of, of abortion rights. But I don't know many states where that actually rebounded against the Democrats. Now, in 2022, there were, these were state elections. It sort of mattered who the governor of Michigan or Wisconsin was going to be. Um, 2024, obviously, presidential level, you could argue less direct effect. You could imagine a federal law on abortion, however, one way or the other, either codifying the right or codifying a limit on the right. But assuming that that doesn't look too likely, I still think in some states it, it could have an effect. In states in states where the Republican Party is in particular is sort of out of step with, uh, I think, the, main, the majority of voters. In, in states like Texas, where I thought, gee, that was a pretty draconian law that Governor Abbott signed, six weeks and and also remember the the kind of uh, bounty for people who you know testified that other people were getting abortions uh that seems not to have hurt the republicans honestly in 2022 florida i'd say though ron DeSantis said he was pro-life and i assume he really is but he, the law in florida was 15 weeks i think now it's six weeks could that affect some people in florida and then i think especially in a state like arizona and then those midwestern states I don't know that if if the Republican presidential candidate has to run or chooses to run on a platform of a federal law that limits abortion pretty radically, uh, or if he's even associated with a party that's done that at that state level, I think it helps the Democrats some. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's really state by state, and it is kind of a patchwork. So you have the, the Georgia race also. So Georgia passed the six weeks prior to the midterm elections. And yet you had Governor Kemp, you know, win, I believe, by eight points, and he defeated Stacey Abrams, who tried to make that her signature issue. But then you have the split ticket, obviously, with the Senate going. So in some in some respects, I think that had to do with candidate quality um, and then just conservative uh, culture in Georgia. But uh, but yeah, in certain other states, it, it uh, you know, 
what's interesting, I think, will be to watch in Florida, as you said, because they did pass that six weeks. And just looking at the Latino vote and how much more conservative Latinos are in Florida compared to the rest of the country. I mean, in general, they're trending more conservative Latinos are. But in Florida, it was just like pedal to the metal Latinos going, you know, for, for Ron DeSantis. So it'll be interesting. Um, and given, you know, the Catholic faith and the Catholic family focus for Latinos that I would argue that it's actually something that they want. I don't know. I think the Latinos in Florida, though, seem to be conservative on economics. They want to have be they really hate socialism given where they're from and just given their general correct judgment often that you know free market's good and that's the way to make it up in america and they like high educational quality and all kinds of things that are associated a little more maybe with conservatives than liberals these days um i'm not sure the polling suggests they're not that different actually on 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 the abortion issue on on, on pro-choice versus pro-life but but who knows? I do think one other thing I'd just say is I think a lot depends. You mentioned Georgia is a good case, Brian Kemp, but it didn't look, I think, to an average Georgia voter as it was a strict law, you might say, a restrictive law, but it didn't look extreme. It didn't look crazed. It didn't look, they weren't giving bounties to turn in people. They weren't, I think it wasn't a big deal. I don't think they were trying to prevent people perhaps from ordering things from out of state and so forth. Uh, whereas I think in other states, it had a little more the feeling of, you know, it's sort of a really vindictive almost attempt to punish people and to deprive people of, of choices. And even if you got penalized for going out of state uh, to do something which was illegal in another state, which was legal in another state. So I think a lot depends. Uh, and we found this in, in the focus group Sarah Longwell did for Defending Democracy Together, for the Republican Accountability Project, that the general feeling of extremism does hurt a political party. It's hurt the Democrats on a bunch of things, true, defunding the police, et cetera, even though you could say in a very literal way, well, well that's not really quite their position or, you know, that this person in the state isn't for that. But there are a number of voters who just are put off by a feeling of extremism. And as you say, it is candidate dependent. And I, there was no, you know, if you, it's, you sound different if you're Mastriano in, in, in Pennsylvania and certainly Kemp in Georgia, and they are different. So there's a reason they sound different. Even though if you could have a checklist of some of the policies, they might look rather, you know, similar. Well, I think as you folks are talking about on the micro level, the verdict is still out, though I think it's going to help the Democrats overall. But on the macro level, you've seen some really fundamental shifts. And again, most people say, hey, we expand rights in this country. We don't take them away. And you have to remember that most women of reproductive age have never lived in a world without Roe, which whatever you want to say about it, and there are many pluses and cons, um, it was kind of an uneasy truce that Americans had accepted. And I think also, uh, as I've said before, I think Republicans were have been really, uh, the pro-life movement has been, they've been sore winners. They could have had 95% of what they wanted without pushing this extremism. Remember, the deal was, all we want to do is just return it to the states. That's all we want to do. But now they're pushing national bans and going way more extreme than most people want. So I think you're starting to see trends in terms of for the first time, more people are identifying as pro-choice and pro-life. That's never happened before. I think you're also seeing an inversion where it used to be that a lot of Republican voters made it a, a mandatory that their that the candidate they voted for was pro-life. Now you're seeing it. The other side is pro-choice. So again, the we'll see what happens in the election. But I think that the pro-life movement has misplayed their hand. And I think in the end, it's uh, it's going to be very detrimental, but time will tell. 
No, I think that's a very, the last point's a very good point. Those are all good points, but the last point's particularly good. I mean, obviously, the presidential election in particular, people vote on many, many issues, and it's unlikely that this issue gets, you know, 40% of the voters are not going to go in on uh, to, to, to the polling booth or fill out their mail-in ballot thinking, I'm voting primarily on this issue. But as I said, it does also, there's a certain sense of extremism that could be conveyed by extreme policies or stances or just rhetoric on this issue, A and B. I, I think your point's a very good one that, uh, and it does is supported by public opinion that uh, people are put off by. Uh, it's now a real political issue in a way it was it used to be a symbolic issue to some degree with are you for or against Roe v. Wade. Certainly, it energized pro-life voters who were unhappy with the status quo more than pro-choice voters who I think took the status quo for granted because the Supreme Court had ruled and looked like it was going to continue upholding it until pretty just a very few years ago. Now the status quo is it's up in the air in many states and to some degree at the federal level. And so, and the data does suggest that the pro-choice, you know, the, the, the minority, the small, relatively small number, but not tiny number of voters who for whom this is a number one or two or three issue, probably now there are more pro-choice, such voters who are pro-choice than such voters who, who are pro-life. So I, I tend to think politically it, it continues to help the Democrats and the general sense of just, to, we're talking right after the Supreme Court term ended, maybe a general sense too that the court has a lot of Republican appointees on it. That's true. It's a, you know nothing nefarious or not too much nefarious about that. Maybe it was a little nefarious with Mitch McConnell and stuff, but still basically you win the presidency, you get to appoint judges. So what are their six Republican appointees and three Democratic, but it's not even obviously, and and several of these decisions at the end were six three. In a general sense, I should think that gee, the court's pretty conservative. Maybe that's a good thing. It stops some of the democratic overreach. Like he probably didn't. President Biden probably doesn't shouldn't really have had the executive ability to forbid to pardons uh, to forgive student loans just on his own. You know dubious interpretation of the legislation. But the court will fix that. If you're sort of a moderate voter, you think to yourself, the court's not going anywhere. These six conservative justices don't look like they're going anywhere. And okay, so that's a bit of a check on Biden. And I do think, therefore, if you're right in the middle, you think maybe it's better not to have another Republican president who might get another appointment or two and really have a lopsided court chugging down this path even further. You know, So I think in that respect, marginally helps probably the Democrats. Well, I think at the end of the day, it's really should be, uh, I think, yeah, politically, we, that's the world is important to understand how the world works. But I guess for me, for someone who is pro-life, it, it's not about politics. It's about what's right and wrong. Uh, it's about that there's a human life at stake. And the fact that over 90% of scientists uh, who are, you know, apolitical say that immediately at conception, there's a human life at stake. And that that's something that I think should not be lost in, in the middle of all this. And I think the Supreme Court, you know, created this pause as a culture to say, um, you know, states, this is something important to think about. And I, I think my hope is that the, the middle ground is the area of prevention. So we can talk more about prevention as opposed to termination, because so much of the focus is on termination. We get to prevention. We don't even have to get to that stage. That's my hope. And also on the national ban, Dave, just to point out, the Lindsey Graham bill would prohibit it after only after 15 weeks, which is the vast majority of Americans support after 15 weeks. I don't think that's extreme at all. Uh, the only thing I'd say about that, so I've been, I mean, I was just, I've, I've been pro-life and I am pro-life to some degree, but I say I've educated and learned more now when it became a live issue. And you know, even some of the abortions that are sought after 15 weeks are really for medical reasons. And almost most of them actually are. People are, don't sit around 
you know, being pregnant for six months and decide, hey, I think it's sort of just as a lark, I'm going to abort the baby, maybe if you do. But a lot of times there's genuine distress, genuine risk, maybe not literally the, the threat of, of death of the mother, which is usually, you know, a life of the mother is usually an exemption. But sometimes it's ambiguous whether it would be the life of the mother, sometimes the speed with which we can have something done. So I, I think it's, it is a complicated issue. I think one can be pro-life and understand also that uh, look, the number of abortions in this country, due to the, in part to the efforts of the pro-life movement, as well as to other things, contraception and, and, and education, um, uh, declined by about a half, basically, since the high watermark and what was that, about the mid-80s. So I don't, uh, I think, and I think it's interesting to see just empirically wh what happens with the numbers. But I also think, um, no, I think the rhetoric the pro-life movement uses is important. I think most of it has been over the years, you know, pretty caring and responsible and uh, crisis pregnancy centers and that sort of thing. Uh, I do think in the height of the victory over over at Dobbs, there was a little bit of a sore winter problem, as Dave said. And uh, But we know that we'll see who the candidate is and we'll see who what different people say as we go ahead of, over the next year. I think it's in flux. We just don't quite know how it, how it plays out. Yeah, and I, and I do think this abortion till birth, uh, this is a bumper sticker. This is not a real policy. I don't know any woman who's had a late-term abortion because she wants to. Usually it's because of a crisis or thesis viability and, and all that. And, uh, and, I, and again, I, as I said before, I do think that when you look at the policies, whether or not it's a 15-week ban that people support, uh, the people feel that the deal was going to be was go it was going to go to the states and that's the way it should be and by the way that's the way it should be the supreme court should shoot down a national ban banning abortion and they should shoot down any efforts by congress to codify roe versus wade because again those are this is a state issue now so i guess i wanted to move to our second issue which is really a very important one as far as the election goes and that's third-party candidates, and particularly no labels. And I, full disclosure, I've been a supporter of no labels in the past and have really supported what they've done. But it really concerns me that they're talking about running a third candidate because I think, A, I've never seen any proof that, that third candidates can really win. And the more polarized the environment gets, I think the less, the less likely a third-party candidate winning and the more fanciful it, it becomes. And also because Donald Trump is unique in the sense that his 30%, and this is what helped him get elected before, isn't going anywhere. So the other candidates will split the other part of the vote. And more on top of that, this election, this election is unique in the sense you have two candidates who, when there's voters who don't want either, which is frankly, most of them, they break overwhelmingly for Biden. So a third party candidate, I think would hurt him a lot more. So Bill, I know you've been obviously very involved with no labels and you have a lot of thoughts on this. So I'd love to hear what your take is on no labels and the whole third party candidate issue in the 2024 election. Yeah, I'm, I'm really where you are, which is in, th in principle, I'm not against uh, uh, third parties or independent candidates, candidates. And I think as a matter of principle, one might want to look at ways to loosen up the two party duopoly. And you could do that through all kinds of rules of pri primaries, open primaries, the ranked choice voting, fusion voting. There are a lot of things that a lot of, there's actually happening in some localities and states and maybe should happen much more around the country. And I think that those are very promising things. And I think that could happen over the next few years. It's not going to take decades necessarily to change some of our election uh, rules. And people are working on that. But I also, and I think No Labels has done some good work over the years, and especially in Congress with the Problem Solvers Caucus. But I am very wary and, and pretty much opposed to 
their effort in 2024, because I do think Trump, I don't think it's a symmetrical problem. Look, in 1992, people voted for Perot. I didn't think that was a particularly wise vote. But Bush and Clinton, I could see people saying to themselves, look, Bush has been a good president, but we need some fresh thinking. Clinton's kind of fresh thinking, but a little problematic. I'm voting for Perot. But you know what? The world's not going to end if it's Bush or Clinton. I think that's a legitimate way of thinking about it. I was obviously, not obviously, but I was part of the George H.W. Bush White House, and I wasn't happy about that way of thinking about it. And I think Perot did us actually more damage than he did Clinton. He gave an excuse to sort of Republican-ish voters to, to desert, uh, and a lot of them did. But um, but as I say, I don't think it was uh, Perot was himself probably shouldn't have been president, so it was a little irresponsible to vote for Perot. But it wasn't crazy, as I say, if your choice is Bush or Clinton. I do think Trump is unacceptable, and and it's an asymmetric situation. And Biden's been a pretty decent president. I personally wish he had handed over the he he, he had sort of taken the attitude of I will, I'll be a one term president. I'm gonna be be the the, the bridge to the future, uh, the transitional president, and I'm going to try to make sure the party nominates someone good, uh, i.e. moderate, uh, for 2024, but it, it's going to be Gretchen Whitmer or Josh Shapiro or whoever you want, you know, and not, and not me. He didn't take that point of view. I don't blame him. It's risky to go through a primary process, and he, he did beat Trump, and he thinks probably could do it again, and he thinks he's been a pretty good president. I rather agree with that. But um, so I would prefer if the Democrats were making their generational change this year rather than four years from now. And I do think that is what's incidentally made the no labels pitch appealing. You know, we've got Trump who tried to overturn the last election, Biden who would be the oldest person to run for president at 82. We can do better. And there's something instinctively, you know, appealing about that until you say, wait a second, what's the pr- most likely, most likely, not not necessarily the case, but most likely effective that. The most likely effective that is a third party candidate who takes about two to one, for reasons you said, Dave, votes from Biden and uh, and helps select, conceivably helps select Trump. So I'm, I'm against a third party candidate in 2024. I'm not against exploring ways of changing our election rules or even recruiting people conceivably for 2028. I'm not against either doing it at the state level where you, you, you know, can find someone better outside the current two parties than, than within them. So, yeah, no, I, I agree, Bill, that, uh, that, and Dave too, like that the, um, a third party at this juncture would probably hurt Biden more than Trump. Um, and I just, I have a hard time thinking that there's any third party candidate who would really capture the imagination and draw enough people to actually get over the victory line um, also, because there is such deep loyalty for the two entrenched parties. So I just think it's a really, really high bar. And, and I don't know anybody who could cross it. I mean, maybe you guys know, but I, I can't think of anybody right now. So, um, yeah, and I it's interesting. I, I lived in Israel and I reported on the Knesset for the Jerusalem Post. And they have a parliamentary system, which is very fractured and multi-party system. And it's even more dysfunctional, I would say, than what we have. So as much as a, the two-party system is you know, doesn't all, you know, sometimes it's Coke or Pepsi, it can be pretty generic or um, just not offer people what they want. Uh, in many ways, I think it's more stable. So in that respect, I think, you know, I'm pro-America uh, when it comes to two parties. But I think the fact that, um, yeah, you have uh, the Joe Biden, I agree with you, Bill. I think for the, the Democrat Party, I there's such deep right now um, unfavorables for the president, especially on economic issues. Um, I just and, and now Trump is is outpulling even DeSantis against uh, Biden. And um, if it were held today, he would probably win, um, you know, fairly strongly because of how terrible the economy is. So I don't know why Democrats aren't pushing Biden to retire, but I'm not a Democrat. 
Well, I mean, to be fair, I mean, A, the economy isn't as bad as, some, as people think it is, arguably, as, and B, it's not like if Biden retired, the Democrats still wouldn't bear, bear the burden of, you know, having to defend, of course, Biden's policy. So it, in some ways, the, it is complicated. I think it's an actual political calculation, whether Biden or, or a successor would be a stronger or, or weaker candidate. I'm with you in generally defending the two-party system. And I certainly, I studied political science and taught it. And my view is very much your view. I mean, it, I'd say the two-party system in an era of extreme polarization, though, and I did a conversation just this week was released with Doug Sosnick, who was Clinton's political guy, which he really goes into this in some depth, and I you can take a look at it if you want to conversations with Bill Kristol. It Sosnick really makes the point of the degree of polarization now, and it's really mostly, mostly driven – the parties reinforce it, but it's driven by deeper forces in the country, obviously, social economic sorting and geography and a million different things. And and so the amount – once you combine the polarization with the two-party system, you can get a sort of toxic mix in a way that the two-party system was precisely a moderating force. It took in the extremes from both parties, made them work with the establishments, if you want to put it this way, of both parties. And you ended up, I'd say, with a reasonably healthy outcome for much of American history and certainly much of the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, but you could argue it started to go awry. And when you have polarization and, you know, limited turnout in primaries and only two parties, you can get the opposite phenomenon, which is a kind of spiral of extremism as opposed to a as opposed to a virtuous uh, spiral if you want to call it that of towards towards moderation so that's that's again it's an empirical question in some ways it's a it's dependent on a million things it's contingent no one is no you know the the, the lord did not tell us you know two-party systems are better everywhere and always and they didn't tell us multi-party systems are better everywhere and always. so you do have to adjust one's judgment I, i'm sympathetic to the no labels people in this respect of saying things have gone a little awry in this country and if you look at a lot of europe where they have problems i mean israel's a mess but if you look at a lot of uh, Europe where they have parliamentary systems, you could argue they have these centrist coalitions that govern pretty decently in a lot of countries and are better and to marginalize the extreme left and the extreme right. And that's not such a bad outcome. So I think it is complicated and these reforms often don't turn out the way you think. So I've just been focusing on the short term. I mean, I'm for other people exploring these reforms, but in the short term, I think uh, Trump is too dangerous to, to run experiments in 2024. Yeah, and here's here's a, some political trivia. The last third party candidate to get any electoral votes, George Wallace. Okay, Ross Perot, even though he got 19 percent of the vote in 1992, didn't get a single electoral vote. And I think Bill's point there is is one that's underrated, and that is that in 1992, because both candidates were considered pretty centrist, people didn't think they were wasting their vote. But when it comes to like the existential threat to the country, which a lot of people on both sides now think the other party is, people are much less likely to do that. And I would also say, if you're going to build a third party, or frankly, if you're going to build anything, you start from the bottom, right? Build a foundation, right. build a philosophy, build a network, you know, get organized, you know, don't just start from the top. This to me is about money and money and power. This is not about really what's doing rest, what's best for the country. So hopefully, Enough people will be able to talk them out. And as far as other candidates, how about, you know, the the Democrats have a great history of letting people bubble up you'd never imagine. So Roy Cooper is just finishing his second term as governor of North Carolina, a purple state. Andy Bashir has a 60 plus percent approval rating in Kentucky. All right. Bill mentioned Gretchen Whitmar. So there, I think Jared Polis is very strong. I don't know if Americans is are ready good. Yeah, to yeah. elect a gay president yet, but we're getting close. So there's plenty 
the bench has talent, but Biden has no business running. I mean, I've Carrie's heard me say this like I'm a broken record, but you know, it's a real issue. And it's the bottom line is it's best case scenario. It's very risky, right? Because all it takes is one major health event, one bad fall or something. And people are going to say, you know what? The guy may be a fascist, but gas and gas and food were cheaper. We didn't get in any wars, blah, blah, blah. They'll they'll rationalize it. And uh, it's just too big of a risk to to take. I've been where you where you are, Dave. I mean, I, I the counter argument would be it's too big of a risk to go through a Democratic primary and end up with either Vice President Harris, who isn't popular, I think, and and or even a re- more radical candidate. It won't be the ones we like, the Polises and the Whitmers and the Coopers who, who emerge. I'm not. I don't agree with that. As it happens, I really think that the majority of the party is m- more on the moderate side. But you know, it will be a messy. It would be a messy primary. Remember those Democratic debates in 2019? They weren't really great for you know. And Biden then pulled it out kind of miraculously there in, in February, March 2020. So it's it's hard to know. I would say one thing, I think the Democrats are, are alerted to the problem of no labels and of a centrist, allegedly centrist candidacy. They're a little too complacent though about Cornell West who says he's going to run as an independent on the Green Party ticket and, either, and others who might do that kind of thing. I mean, the Democrats have lost, they sort of don't want to think about this, but they did lose elections in 2000 and 2016, arguably and pretty seriously arguably, because of independent candidates, third-party candidates on the left. I mean, Gore really would have won Florida, I think, if, if you hadn't had Ralph Nader on the on the ballot. He took more votes from Gore than Buchanan did from Bush. And then in 2016, I think Hillary maybe wins the key Midwestern states if Jill Stein isn't on the ballot. And so, I mean, at least the number of votes she got was larger than the margin. And they should worry more about even a fringy left-wing candidate because you are in such a polarized and such an even, relatively even environment. One of the th- reasons Biden won in 2020 when Clinton lost in 2016 is there were the third party, the wasted vote, so to speak, was about, I think, 1.6%, if I remember, but I think under two compared to about 6% in 2016. And the data does show that those voters who were dissatisfied with both parties and with both candidates were, when forced to choose, when there was no alternative to vote for, went more for the Democrats and more for Biden. Uh, and then the broader polling does show that in general, the double haters, the pollsters call them, the people who don't like either, break about two to one for Biden, sometimes even more, three to one. So I think Biden benefits when it's forced into a two-party choice uh, and can get hurt to the degree that either on the left or in the center, there's a chance to sort of flake off, whereas the Trump voters aren't flaking off anywhere that I can see. Bill, I, I know we got to go quickly, but to your what you were just saying, do you think RFK Jr., if he doesn't get the Democrat nominee, would he run as a third party? Do you think? Well, I've, you know, it's a good question, Carrie, and I, I actually thought about that. I mean, he sounds so much uh, like, like Trump in certain ways, though, in terms of his being anti-Ukraine and sort of vax, uh, I don't know, critic or denier or whatever the right word is, anti-vax. I mean, I kind of assume that he'll lose the Democratic nomination and then show up at the Republican convention to head up Democrats for Trump. And incidentally, I, you know, look, he's entitled to do that. People like Kasich ran, you know, headed up Republicans for Biden uh, and try to bring some of his voters over to Trump. Be a little, I, but, I, but I suppose that's possible too. I, I wouldn't he take, I wonder if he would take more votes from Democrats or Republicans. He's running such a Republican-ish sounding, Trumpy sounding campaign. On the other hand, the name Robert F. Kennedy would have a certain appeal. So, I mean, there are a lot of wild cards. You know, people look at the polls today and I do this, we all do this. You got to, 
go with whatever data you have, right? And say, it looks like it's going to be this, it's close, it's this, you know, someone's so stronger in this state. I mean, so much could happen. I mean, look at just the world, just back from Europe, foreign policy, Ukraine, uh, what's going to happen with the indictments, which way that affects things politically, and a whole nother Supreme Court term, let's get back to what we started talking, speaking about. So, I mean, it's a very fluid situation. Well, I, I do agree that RFK is a Democratic version of Trump in terms of, you know, never meeting a conspiracy theory he didn't like and the deep state is out to get us and all this. But I think this is yet another warning sign for Democrats, because I think these type of candidates typically are more of a symptom than the problem. And this just underlies the profound dissatisfaction that a huge percentage and don't forget, he's polling over 20 percent. That's that's not insignificant. This is a profound dissatisfaction that Democratic voters have with Biden, and they're longing for another alternative. So this is yet another warning sign, which I hope they'll they will heed, because it's very very risky. Well, folks, I think that's it. We've had such a, a stimulating conversation, Bill. I just can't thank you enough. I really hope you'll come back on the show. Uh, always fun talking shop, and thanks so much for joining us on uh, Practically Political. No, my pleasure, and great to see you both, Carrie and Dave. Thanks, Bill, and thanks to you all. We'll catch you on the next episode.